Welcome back to Brailcast Extra. Coming up this time, programming for the Canute console. A session recorded on Tuesday the 21st of March 2023, moderated by Chantelle Griffiths and introduced by Ben Mustel-Rose. Good evening everybody and a very warm welcome to this evening's Masterclass brought to you, of course, by the Brailist Foundation. This evening's session is the last in the series of our computer science-themed masterclasses, but not to fear, though, because we've got lots and lots of content for you lined up today. A quick reminder of some of the stuff that we've covered throughout this series, though. We started off with a panel event talking about what it's like to work in a STEM career, science, technology, engineering, and maths, as a blind person. We then moved on to Linux. What is Linux? What can you do with it? Um, how do you get started? And what are some useful commands to guide you along your Linux journey? And most recently, we did a bit of an introduction to Git and version control as a concept. Now, for this evening's session, we wanted to lift the metaphorical lid, if you will, on what it's like to write software. Maybe you're thinking of giving it a go. Maybe you're just idly curious and you want to know, okay, well, you know, I've got all these, uh, got all these apps on my phone, got all these interesting techie devices in my home. How are these actually made? Well, we're going to be trying to shed a little bit of light on that this evening. And we're going to do that in the form of two interviews. I'm Ben Lostel-Rose and we're going to start off with me interviewing Ed Rogers from Bristol Braille Technology who has been heavily involved in the creation of the Canute console. So Ed is going to be telling us what it's like to create a piece of assistive technology for the blindness community. Um, but I'm going to have to be quite nice towards Ed in that interview because after I've done interviewing him, he is going to interview me. We're going to turn the tables and he is going to be talking to me about what it's like for me as a blind person who is creating software uh, predominantly used by sighted people. So I think there'll be some, uh, probably quite a few things that there are in common with those two approaches, but maybe some differences as well. So we'll get into all of those. And uh, of course, last but by no means least, the final part of the session will, as always, be questions from you, our lovely, lovely audience. So get your uh, get your questions uh, in uh, towards the end of the session. Get your thinking caps on. Any questions around anything that we've covered in the uh, previous masterclasses, anything that we've covered today, uh, pretty much anything computer science is fair game, and we will do our best to get those questions answered, as always. Um, so Ed, um, let's get started then. And I thought maybe um, if we if we kill two birds with one stone um, to to get us uh, to get us on the road, um, these uh, these masterclasses are being sponsored by BBT, and they have come about because of the Canute console. Now we're going to be talking a lot about the console during this interview. Um, so do you want to give us a bit of an idea of of who BBT are and what the console is at a high level? Yes, uh, I will. Thank you, Ben. So Bristol Braille is a not-for-profit company based in Bristol in the UK. And we dedicate ourselves to creating Braille devices, which uh, bring multi-line Braille and allow more functions for Braille and to make, uh, to make that, those available at an affordable price. So the Canute console is the latest version of this. We, we've been developing the Canute technology for about 10 years before that. 
And what we're doing with the console is turning that into a device which is good for computer science. So the Canute itself, the Canute 360, is a 360-cell Braille display. So that's 40 cells by nine lines. And it's a standalone ebook reader used a bit like a Kindle. The reason we're, we're building a, a next version of this is that we had a lot of people saying they really wanted to connect this to their computer. And they wanted to be able to do some more exciting stuff with us because having nine lines of Braille opens up all sorts of possibilities, which didn't seem very viable for just text-to-speech or even for single-line Braille displays. So we put ourselves to the task at the start of 2022. We had some generous funding, including UFI, which is what's helped us sponsor this masterclass. And as a result, the Canute console is a device which has a 360-cell Braille display, but it also has a 13-inch monitor so that you can work in cooperation with low vision or sighted colleagues and on the display, which is mounted directly above the Braille display, you have exactly the same layout. And I mean, even the columns of Braille line up with the columns of text. So you can point to one part of the Braille display and then, then, and then someone who is visual will look up and see the same spot on the, on the visual display. And the two of you can work together to diagnose problems with your code or to work out some sort of design thing. Sounds great. And I think that that sort of co-working element is is really important in in many many different scenarios. So, and I'm sure we can uh, we can sure uh, delve into that a little bit later if people like. So, so Ed, you, you said that it's good for computer science and writing code. Um, what what are give me like a sort of very short overview of some of the projects that you have been uh, getting involved with with the Canute console. What what can it do? Give give me an interesting project that it can do. We've done a couple. We've done robotics. We've done maps. These are top-down maps. This is controlling robots remotely and general programming. But the one that I would like to talk about is it ties in with the previous lessons we've been doing very nicely, and it's our football playback. So this is where it downloads. You, you download as the user any uh, football, soccer football game from the last year and then it will draw a tactile pitch and use the data that is available from a, um, a wonderful company called StatsBond that turns video, and they can do this live, turns video into a series of data points, and it will draw a tactile pitch on the Canute console, as well as a visual version on the display. Include two lines of Braille, which tells you what is going on on the pitch at that given moment. So um, Rice is on the ball, he's passed, and the ball is at this position on the pitch. And then, but the ball is actually moving around the pitch and it moves when you press the space bar. It's not moving, um, it's not moving without you wanting it to, because that's quite important. And that's uh, just a, a demonstration example of how multi-line Braille starts to open things up and, and makes things more cooperative. So there are all sorts of examples where you have a spatial diagrams or spatial pitch or video games, um, mobile games in particular, mapping as well. Where if you're a if you're a Braille using developer, you would want to be able to test what it is that is being seen visually and know precisely where on the screen it is, and that's what we've developed this for. 
definitely. Now, Ed, I'm going to put my, myself in, in the shoes of someone who, who maybe doesn't write software because I think if I'd heard that, my mind would be blown. So let's let's go back and try and break this down a little bit because actually um, one of the important skills to develop if you do want to build products is this ability to sort of break down quite a big problem into uh, many, uh, hopefully more manageable chunks. So, you know, Ed, you've got a, a virtual football pitch on a Braille display. Firstly, wow. Um, secondly, We've downloaded our data, right? But what are the hopefully more manageable chunks involved or steps, if you will, involved of getting that data and then, you know, getting it to a point where I can just reach out in front of me and feel a, a virtual football pitch, which I can't wait to do, by the way. We'll, uh, we'll have to get a demo of that. And what, what, what are the steps involved in that? The first step is working out what doesn't change. So you don't need to have any data given to you to know the shape of the football pitch. You can look at that as an independent description. So you've, um, even if you've never felt a tactile football pitch or seen one, you can see the description, which is it's a box, which is around about uh, 120 by 80 yards on average. That's across and what and down. And then it's got a, a painted box on either side within which you have a goal. And it's got a central point in the middle. So that you just draw directly onto the Braille display, like a static image. And then you need the data, of course. So this only works when someone out there has already created the data. But as you know, this the, there's data for almost everything these days. The question is what to do with it and how to filter it. So what we do is we go to the, uh, the open source repository and uh, remember, in the previous masterclass, we were talking about repositories and we were talking about Git. So there are all sorts of repositories out there that are full of interesting data sets, which look very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're very overwhelming because they haven't been broken down yet. They're, you know, a big file that's 10,000 lines long, but you work out which bit you need by following the readme. So you go on a, you, you, you search for, I need football data. I want, I want data, which tells me where the position of the ball is. Cause that's all I want to know. I want to know where the position of the ball is and which players were on the ball at the time. You find that repository, you follow the readme, which is in there, which is almost always in any good repository. If there isn't a readme, you don't really want to be working with that sort of, with that sort of data. And, and then that will tell, that will describe to you what to look up within that file. So in this case, we had a file which might be called a random string. So it might have a number, it might have a, the name of the, the game, or it might just have a number, which was the date, followed by .json. And you don't have to worry about too much about what .json is, but it's just a way of representing data where you have a key, which is what is the time, and then you have the value, which is the time is three minutes into the game and two seconds. And then you, you start to look for libraries. So again, you, you don't have to know this stuff in advance. You go on, you, you can look this up and you, you so I've got a file called JSON and I need to be able to get the data I want out of it and exclude the rest of it. So then you, you work out which library you're going to use. So I'm using something called JQ, which is very useful in this case. And I'm sure you've used it yourself many times, Ben. And you put the instruction sets for those, which takes you from you know, uh, how to, how to take this 
huge data file and then reduce it down to only the things I want to see. And that's the bit that takes almost all the time. You've already drawn your pitch, which is just a matter of drawing characters directly to the screen. You already know what you want because you've made a decision in design. And then you just have to go and look up how to reduce that data set down. And it's kind of interesting, and I suppose as as an interesting analogy, uh, let let me know if you uh, let me know if you agree or not. But I, I wonder if it's almost like the the sort of the opposite of of a sighted person transcribing a diagram, right? So you're effectively saying, right, I've got this information, and I want to make it accessible in a format that works for my for my user or or for my client, and you're you're doing things you're you're not you're not making new data you're just taking existing data and presenting it in a different way so you know uh, as i say almost the opposite to a diagram you know you might have a diagram that's inaccessible so someone might come down you know come along and transcribe it into a text form so so this this is essentially data conversion isn't it right yeah exactly and what makes this really really powerful when you're doing stuff with braille or just as a computer scientist that's that's blind or working with blind people is you don't you don't need to be able to have that visual version to start with because this data has already been created you can look up whatever it is you're interested in the layout of a city um where the ball is at any precise second in a in a game of football and as long as you're prepared to learn what to do with that file it will give you a coordinate for a certain thing where your post office is the rest of it. And you can look up how to plot that. And you're recreating the image without ever having seen the image. Like I'm sighted, but I started without a video for the game I started, I used to, to play. I, I chose a Spanish league game and you recreate it from scratch without ever having seen anything. I then switched later to one that where I could compare the two, but you didn't need that is the thing. And I think what's really nice is that, you know, for people who learn to, to code, you know, you can, as you say, you've got this rich source of existing data. And if you know how to code, you can represent it any way you want. You could even you know, write a song to represent it if you wanted. Um, but Ed, so so we, we've sort of, we've figured out the individual steps. Um, I'm guessing you didn't just sit down and do this in one sitting right um and i think this this maybe speaks to one of the other uh, maybe challenges of coding in as much as i'm guessing there were a few versions before you got to the finished version because you don't just want to write all of this massive amounts of code at once and then just hope that it works right i'm guessing you wrote some test code to make sure you were interpreting the data correctly uh first just for example yeah, so the first thing I did was I wanted to take the bit which was easiest for me to be sure was correct, which is there are bits of text within this JSON file. And I'm going to go and describe a JSON file very briefly here. But if you imagine a list of data points, so it might say the time is zero minutes and one second, and that's kickoff. And then underneath that, indented slightly, and it, so that you understand it's part of the same piece of data you have information like who is on the ball player equals this player and the move equals kickoff and so on and so forth yeah it's a good example and i think what's nice about um a json file it's um it's not someone called json by the way it's just how we say it. it's actually json um i think what's nice about it 
is that yes you know we can read these things as a human but actually the reason that you've got all of these equals and colons and brackets and braces is that it makes it easier for a computer to read yes i start by working out something very simple which is the time followed by the player who's currently on the ball because those are two things that you can look up very easily in many ways uh, if uh, and of course one time has to follow the other and then you try and be more ambitious and you try and plot this in space and you always get it wrong and i don't think i've ever asked you this before but when you first started programming full stop did you fall into that a very easy trap to fall into where as i say you, you thought oh right I'm, I'm, my code is going to work perfectly the first time i'm going to write everything and and then and then it doesn't work and i guess have you learned over time to to sort of start small and then build up once you're confident i have to keep relearning that then it's an ongoing thing isn't it just as soon as you feel confident enough to increase the size you know um you, you get sort of pushed backwards you know 90 percent of software engineering is just sort of trying to figure out what you've done wrong but it's usually only like one character that you've got wrong right i think the the, the way around that which which is the bit i keep forgetting you need to be able to explain what you're doing in english or of course your native language and the reason why using a repository helps that it's not just a way of backing up when you're saving your file to a repository and for those who haven't go back off just briefly a repository is one that saves every version and lets you switch between different versions so it wasn't just saving the latest but you have to give it a very specific name which tells you what the change is so you can't just go ahead and say i'm going to build a tactile pitch now you have to break that down you have to say i have plotted a tactile pitch i haven't put anything on it yet and then that's one commit and that really helps because if you if you try and move faster than you can explain it in english you will make those sorts of mistakes yeah definitely and sometimes um if you have access to someone else uh, who can listen to you even if they're not technical sometimes just verbalizing what you want the computer to do can be really really useful because i i don't know about you but i it took me a bit of time to sort of to think like a computer things you have to think very very literally and some people are good at that already some people aren't as good at it um but yeah you know you have to you have to remember ed right these these things are are not humans you know we might assume oh well it's obvious that i want the computer to move to the next portion of the game but unless you tell it to it's not going to right there's there's a particular style of thinking that is important for stuff like this right i've always thought about it internally as being like having a conversation with the most pedantic person you imagine we all used to know possibly we have ceased to speak to the person that most pedantic person it's like trying to speak to someone who will pick holes in anything you say you have to be very careful with it you have to expect those holes and you have to be prepared to be calmly go back over and and say why that isn't a problem um and and whilst we're on the subject let's not forget the value of what people tend to call pseudo code you don't even need to be able to make something work on a computer to start programming. You just work out what it is you want to do and you write it out one line under the other in any way you like. You're not going to run it in the computer to say, first of all, I'm going to draw a pitch. This is what I literally did. I started with a text file, which just described what I wanted to do. And then it gets more and more elaborate until I start writing the code. So right, first of all, I'm going to draw a pitch. I'm going to draw the 18 yard boxes on either side. Then I'm going to look through the JSON file, the JSON file, and I'm going to look for the timestamp. And I'm going to mean that every time there's a new timestamp, I'm going to look for the ball position. And you literally write it out like that. And then 
in theory, you go through and you turn each line into a piece of code. In actual fact, you go through and turn each line into a great mess of code. And it never is that simple, but that's the th principle and it really helps. Yeah, definitely. That's uh, that's really, really uh, useful to know. Um, I guess one of the one of the really interesting things about the Canute console is is this ability to do multi-line. So you've got your, your static um, part of a pitch, but then you're drawing objects, you know, like different things onto that pitch how are you figuring out where it needs to be so first of all you need to know the size of the thing you're writing to whether that is a monitor because of course I, I, just because you're using a braille display doesn't mean you're also writing to a monitor or whether it's a single line braille display or a multi-line braille display you need to work out what the size of that thing is so in my case the thing is 40 characters wide by nine lines and I've got exactly the same on a visual display as on the braille display. And then you need to know what sort of value the data falls in. Now, when you're talking about a football pitch, you want the whole thing on the display at one time. That's how I chose to do it. So I know that this football data turns everything into a 120 by 80 square grid. That's how all the matches are presented. So I then take 40 wide, the length of the pitch, and I know that all the data will be somewhere within 120. And I just divide uh, the one by the other. And that, that tells me where to place it. Of course, if you've got data which is much larger, like a map of the city, you have to decide on how much of that you want to see at any one point. And then you say, I'm gonna, I've got a map of the city which is two miles long. My Braille display is only 40 characters. How much of the city do I want to see in any one spot? Maybe I want to see a quarter of a mile. And then you do the mathematics. You should generally be doing your maths um, at least a little bit outside of your code because you don't want to get to the point where you're, you're not sure whether your maths is wrong or whether you're just forgotten how to write in C or whatever language you're using. And it's also good to um, sort of separate things out so that they're easier to find. Um, I'm always interested in asking um, assistive technology vendors, what are some sort of interesting, unique challenges that you've run into in developing your products that are sort of maybe specific to the assistive technology industry, if, if you will? I'm going to stick to screen readers because I think that's most relevant to everyone here. To present a spatial map of, um, of a football pitch and move the ball around within it, well, that bit was quite easy because we'd spent months working with the screen reader, Braille TTY, to work out exactly how you have multiple lines. So for us, you've got to remember every screen reader is different and they all have their limitations. So we had to actually change the screen reader itself in order to be able to do this. Not a casual undertaking, as you say, clearly um, a multi-month at least project. Um, before we do a bit of a role reversal, anything else you want to add that I, uh, that I haven't covered? Only that those who are interested in the Canute console and seeing it should go to the website bristolbrail.org get in contact with us or just read about it. We've got some videos with voiceover on them. And we've done more than just the, the football. The, the football is perhaps the, the oddest use that people had not expected of it. Well, thank you so much for that, Ed Rogers. And I'm looking forward to many more quote-unquote odd things coming from the Canute console. What a really interesting one-of-a-kind device as well. And I think that the thing that excites me most is that, you know, we haven't had access to multi-line Braille for that long, really, in the grand scheme of things. And so all of the stuff that you're doing at the moment is really exciting to me. But I'm also excited about 
the stuff that we've yet to think about. Well, indeed. And to be able to do them collaboratively within larger teams, because that was something of a small project within quite a small team. But, you know, a lot of the work is in much larger teams, of course. So, Ben, you work at the BBC, and we're going to hear about a project which is, um, well, it's a red button topic. <laughs> uh, so let's start with the, because not everyone on this, on this call will, will know this. What's the overview? So the red button is a uh, is a text service within the UK. It's delivered via TV. Um, it delivers things like news, sports, weather, travel. And I think the really nice thing about it is that because it comes via TV, uh, you don't need the internet, right? So um, obviously this is going to vary from country to country, but there are actually quite a few people in the UK who don't have an internet connection for whatever reason. You know, maybe they can't afford it or maybe their property is isolated to the point where the internet doesn't work. Um, but so long as you can receive TV, you can receive this red button service, which is delivered you know, via your TV in data form. Then your TV uh, understands it and uh, lets you interact with it. And uh, the clues in the name, uh, for anyone who has useful vision, if you press the red button on your on your remote, that is the service that you will get. And um, we, we'll get into this in a bit more detail. But basically, it, it combines you know various different bits of information from different parts of the BBC and puts them on your telly. So this isn't the internet. You talked about that. And of course, everyone feels like, a, I think most people feel a little familiar with how the radio wave system works. But what we're talking about here, if it's not on the internet, it is using broadcast. This is some sort of Freeview feature, is that right? Yeah, so it's available on Freeview, FreeSat and uh, and Sky, which are all sort of uh, broadcast standards within the UK. And obviously Sky is available abroad as well. And there, there are some challenges with, with doing that, right? So if you're on a computer, you can make what you might call a request to bbc.co.uk, for example. And that is requesting the information from a server somewhere in in a so a server as in a a very powerful computer in in a nutshell. With TVs, you you can't do that. A TV can't say to the BBC, right? I want this. Um, the TV just receives whatever the BBC broadcasts, right? And then you you decide what you want to do with that data, right? So you can say, right? Well, I want to watch BBC One. Okay, right? I'll do that. I want to watch Channel 4, for example. So the way that the red button works is it's broadcast in what's called a carousel. And you can think of this as, as a sort of constantly spinning merry-go-round, right? So the red button service is divided into what we call different scenes, but basically a scene is a page, right? So a page will have different kinds of content on it. Maybe it's a menu, maybe it's a table for some football results, maybe it's a, a news article. And so... All of the scenes or pages are being broadcast in kind of like a carousel form. So it'll broadcast the first page, then it'll wait for a bit, then it'll broadcast the second page, then it'll wait for a bit, then the third page, wait for a bit. I'm pretty sure you can guess where we're going here. So it'll broadcast all of the pages and then it'll just loop round to the beginning again and it'll just keep on doing that and the reason why is because you can't consciously ask the BBC for that information if you're a TV you have to just give the TV all of the information. And then once it's got all of the information, it basically puts it into nice, pretty content for you. That makes a very interesting point that, that you referenced, which is 
that's how the television works. But when you're requesting something off the internet, you make a request that is it fair? My understanding has always been the best way of just thinking about the way the internet would work as a comparison to broadcasting is it's almost like an instantaneous postal service. You send a letter to Google saying, dear Google, please tell me um, the nearest post office to me in Bolton. And Google sends you a letter back saying it's this one. Yes. And that's that's one of the one of the interesting things about broadcast, right? So to use your example, if you if you send that letter to Google, Google's just giving you that response. Whereas if you were doing it via the TV and you wanted that information on your TV, Google would have to broadcast that information all across the country, regardless of whether you wanted it or not, because someone might do, right? You know, not everyone on red button wants to look at horse racing right but some people do so we have to broadcast it whereas if it was on a website we'd only send the horse racing results to people who asked for it so what your tv is doing is staying on the horse racing once it receives it right you've asked you picked horse racing and then it says i'm going to stay on horse racing but in the background everything is being broadcast yeah yeah that's uh, exactly that and for anyone who's uh, just as, as a very quick technical aside um People often assume that, you know, switching to delivering video over the internet, for example, is a whole lot cheaper than broadcasting it, but it's it's actually not. Um, in this instance, broadcast is better because you're only broadcasting one copy of, of the stream, one copy of the video, right? Um, however, when you're when you're doing it online, you're having to send that information to anyone who wants it. So don't worry if you don't understand that. Just a little technical aside, sometimes new is not always cheaper. It does come up actually now. A lot of people are talking about the effects of you know how much carbon you're using in order to generate so much streamed content. But like you say, we won't dwell on that one. I'd like to know what it you know a little more about your role within that team and whether there are very many other people who are using screen readers, whether there are many other blind developers. Within my team, I'm I'm the only blind person. You know, and I'm I'm not here to sort of big things up when when they when they don't deserve to be bigged up i think there are some pros and cons about that to be on balance so one of the big cons uh, or one of one of one of the challenges let's say is that the the red button service is is inaccessible if you're totally blind as as is the case with me so this comes down to this ability that the uh, a, a fair handful of blind people have whether we know it or not to think outside the box i always half joke that my life is essentially one massive life hack and some people who don't know blindness think that I'm joking and then anyone who is blind knows that I'm telling the truth and I say that because you know ultimately I have to figure out ways to access this data and um, it comes back to what Ed was saying in his interview actually so our data starts out when it comes from other BBC teams that starts out as our good friend Jason so we we do lots of weird and wonderful things to transform it into a format that works well on tellies. That's all done via computers. And then there's one part towards the end of what you might call that, that sort of pipeline that the data goes through where it gets sent to a telly. So what you can do from an accessibility point of view is if you can sort of intercept it, if you will, at a stage in that pipeline where it's sort of still fairly easy for a human to read, you can then say, okay, right, well, I know that I've written the code to get the news correctly because my logging is now showing me the news. So by logging, we basically mean put something on the screen, show me what data there is. And obviously, had I not written the news code correctly, then 
I wouldn't see it, right? It just wouldn't work. So that's that's one of the challenges. I guess just just quickly add, I think one of one of the one of the pros is that I tend to think about things differently, right? Because the mindset that having to figure out problems in a you know in in what if we're honest is a sighted world, the mindset that that develops is is really really useful. Um, so there's been a couple of instances where I've written like pieces of software that I need to use for accessibility reasons in order to interact with the service, and it's turned out oh actually yeah you know what the rest of the team find that useful as well and the other good and slightly less technical one is hotkeys right so i thought okay right um you know i'm in a team full of like really techie people they're all going to know all of the various hotkeys to help them be more productive and obviously i know them anyway as a blind person turns out they didn't know the hotkeys right so just little things like being able to help uh, colleagues with oh yeah actually you know what you can do this a lot quicker if you use the keyboard by pressing this that really helps for scenarios where you know if I need them to do something for me if I need them to see if I've you know laid out a table correctly which I would struggle to do it's still an equal partnership because I'm helping them in in other ways something you said earlier which um, interested me a lot was and I want to come back to is logging because that's a really important tool uh, for anyone, any developer, but especially when you're having to do what you're saying, which is sort of hack your way in to work something which is not designed to work with accessibly necessarily. So logging, is it fair to say that that's about where you just sort of take the data halfway through and then, you know, you're trying to make a certain sort of data, but you just dump it to a file before it's even got there, just to double check. Yeah, yeah. So imagine um, I've done some food analogies uh, before in these classes. So imagine that you're a parent and you, you're you teaching your child how to make a cake, right? So you might say to your child, right, okay, well, you've got to get all these ingredients, then mix it up and then put it in the oven, blah, blah, blah. And so you think you've finally given your child the correct instructions to make the cake, but you're not sure, right? So you want your child to tell you what, it's doing you know, what the child is doing as it goes just in case anything goes drastically wrong right you don't want the child to just make the cake in silence right because then you just have no idea what's happening so you would say to your child just every now and then while you're doing something just tell me what you're doing so i can just make sure that we're on track and that's the same with logging as you say right so in your code you at various points say actually you know what just tell all the humans what you're doing so that we can make sure that we've written this correctly because you know if you don't have any logging right your your program might not do anything right if you remember when we were using linux some of those commands didn't say anything at all so when you're building these commands or when someone built these commands they will have almost certainly had lots of logging because otherwise the output is just completely blank so it's it's a really useful way of, of figuring out what's going on and of course, we'd all love to live in a world where every application in the literal sense of being a program, but also just every application of code is very accessible. But it's also worth saying that in the real world where that isn't necessarily the case, you can continue to work on something even when it is not does not have accessible output because you can go in halfway through and make the code report back to you. And you can still be involved in projects, even if the output does not look like it's going to be accessible to you. Yeah, and it's also about trying to like find ways to make yourself be useful as well before red button i did a lot of stuff around video 
and you know you know obviously that presented its its fair share of challenges around you know doing that whilst being totally blind but the way that i solved that was just by being really really good at something that i did understand and that i that i did that i was able to contribute to so yeah it's just about sort of like finding the area that works well for you i guess we're talking about the red button but i think it's worth also comparing and contrasting the difference between working on your own project and working within a big organization which has all its own standards so maybe if you could tell us about uh, an example of of uh, one of your own pieces of software outside of work and how that differs and how you might start things differently and come out with a different result yeah so so i've, I've sort of build build the odd thing every now and then i'll do some uh, i'll do some shameless promotion and i'll promote can you see me uh which is an app to help uh blind people make sure our faces are in shot of our webcams before you do things like zoom or teams meetings um it's available for windows it's free you can go to can you see me app and basically if you've ever used the iphone with voiceover on and it um if you open the camera it'll tell you whether your face is in shot it's basically that but for windows and one of the things that you find is if you're if you're part of a team you'll usually have to do things the way that the team wants them to be done you know there might be specific processes there might be specific pieces of software and you know you can potentially force that change there are probably a few considerations under the equalities act particularly if they're doing things that are inaccessible but actually if you join a team and you try and change the way they do things right it's you know it's not it's not going to work well for you so there's like there's what's legally possible but then there's what you can do in the real world and as a you know professional software engineer to be honest i care a whole lot more about the real world usually so when you're working professionally there's often a fairly rigid set of rules that you have to abide by very rigid set of ways of doing things whereas if i look at can you see me i had a lot more freedom to do things in a way that was completely accessible to me because I think, you know, whilst my job is is pretty accessible, I would say, I think I'm quite lucky. There are things that I only do because the rest of the people on my team are cited. So for example, I indent my code, which is basically a way of like visually making the code easier to understand. And sometimes that's important. Sometimes you do need to do it, but sometimes you don't need to do it. If you code using speech, it's slightly different if you code using Braille, then it can still be useful. But if you just code using speech, you don't need to do this indentation practice. So I think the way that I built it was definitely different because I just I just did the stuff that worked for me. And there were a few sort of, uh, I guess, technical life hacks that I did along the way to improve the accessibility of the build process for me that you know probably wouldn't be appropriate if you were doing this as part of an organization so i don't want to discourage anyone from becoming a professional software engineer but i think it would be fair to say that doing it professionally is is harder than doing it as a hobby because you know your, your freedoms are are sort of curtailed a little bit when you're doing it uh, professionally there's another distinction i think it's worth covering isn't there between it's not just about whether you're working with a big team which has all its own processes and you have to you know, compromise other people. It's also about whether you've already shipped a product and whether people are relying on it staying the same. And that really curtails what you can do. So when when you're coming up with something that you're designing on the spot, you can be very imaginative, you can try different approaches. But when you're dealing with something which already exists, like the red button, you cannot break that. And that becomes the highest priority. And that makes life more complicated in some circumstances. It makes it very, very complicated. So one of the reasons that Red Button doesn't work with screen readers and 
you know that that would be very very hard is because it has to work on every tv every freeview box every freesat box that was released between uh 1998 and 2021 so you've got 23 odd years worth of compatibility now the bbc doesn't have every freeview box every tv that was released in those 23 years right so you can't just go in and retroactively add stuff and assume that it works that it's going to work on every single tv because actually we've spoken a lot about uh you know how it's very easy to have problems in your code and so even though you know tvs obviously developed by you know very well established companies we can't assume that the code that they've written to understand our our scenes our red button service we can't assume that it's perfect right so it may be that you know you could get it working on a 2021 tv but then what happens if we broadcast all of that accessibility code and then it crashes loads of other tvs and that is a a genuine concern yeah you how you approach accessibility depends a great deal on the age of the project and there may well be people on this call that want to go on working on uh, utilities facilities as you know nuclear or electricity and so on and it gets more and more locked down the more important the service becomes in terms of it what what goes on if it breaks so it's something that's worth everyone bearing in mind here the, um, but of course that's why we have communities of people who support each other in trying different sorts of assistive technology because that's the best way of doing it is to ask what other people are using to solve a problem yeah, definitely. So, uh, Ed, is there anything else you uh, anything else you wanted to uh, uh, ask me? I only wanted to ask a little bit briefly about how that worked. Uh, can you see me? Um, just for anyone that's interested in trying it and maybe wanting to do something themselves. I know that sounds like a very broad question, but just it is this. This is a web app. Um, are you programming this on a server, and then you're you, people are uploading their video, and then you're assessing it and sending the data back? No, so this works all on your computer. So I don't get to see anything. I don't even get to see when you use the program. So all the photos of your uh, lovely faces are taking uh, are are um, staying on your computer. And actually, it's a really good example of open source libraries. So there's uh, an open source library, so a collection of existing code called OpenCV, CV standing for computer vision. And one of the things that it does is it does face recognition. So it sounds like a really clever application, but to be honest, all I've done is taken this OpenCV library and said, right, okay, get the image from the person's webcam, figure out if it's got a face in it, and if the face is in the top sort 10% of the screen, we'll say it's near the top. If it's in the, the bottom, you know, 10% of the screen, we'll say it's near the bottom. If it's in the, the far left of the screen, we'll say to the left. And and then we we just construct prompts, you know, we construct a sentence to speak um, based on where your face is. So that's that's a, actually a really really good example of reusing stuff that's already out there. Because actually, to be honest, you know, sometimes as as sort of computery people, so to speak, we do want to write things ourselves, but it's a lot easier. I've used that exact one myself, and it's really neat. And it's, it's just, it's definitely worth telling everyone that happens. So you don't need to have gone all the way through, you know, a computer science degree before you can start coming up with an application that you have in your mind and then going looking for something that already solves most of that. But you have a unique way you're going to use it. Hmm. And I was surprised it didn't really exist. Yeah, because I was like, well, come on, all, all the bits and pieces are out there. But um, yeah, it, uh, it didn't. So we've probably got 
time for, for a few questions. So I think, Ed, any questions about this evening or anything that we've covered in the series so far? And uh, the two of us will do our best to help. Fantastic. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. It's been an absolutely fascinating class. My name's Chantal, for those who uh, may not have heard me before. First of all, we're going to go to Alison in a moment, then we're going to Scott, and then we're going to go to Steve. All right. So, uh, Alison. So, one of my biggest gripes with, like, with technology in general, and especially updates, is you know, most, most people doing the programming are, aren't blind themselves. And it drives me crazy. One, when things go from being perfectly fine and functioning with like voiceover or whatever, and then there's an update and then it just totally breaks something really important. And then two, when, when, when sighted people say that something is accessible and then it's not, and, but you don't find out until it's too late. Cause like I had to take a really expensive exam once and they were like, Oh yeah, you can use your Braille display. And then I tried typing with it and it literally crashed the program I had to use to take the test. So I couldn't use my Braille display. And I was very, very annoyed. Like, how do we deal with that? So to your, to your first point, the reason why that happens, obviously not defending it, the reason why that happens is, well, what should happen is uh, your, your, your typical sort of structure of, of a technology team is you'll have your developers who write the code, you'll have testers who test the code, you'll have designers who do all the graphic stuff, and then you'll have... Uh, people like business analysts and product managers that decide what features the product should have. So the way that that should work is product owners, product managers and designers should figure out what the feature should feel like and then what it should look like. Developers write the feature, testers test the feature, and then it gets pushed as an update. Um, what often doesn't happen is that the testing, uh, which is the responsibility of everyone in the team, not just test. Sometimes test won't test for accessibility so that that would point to uh, a fairly you know immature accessibility policy of the team which you know is, is wrong and um you know there's that it, it's harder you know i mean if, if if it was easy to solve we wouldn't have inaccessible applications right we also have the tendency to use phrases like move fast and break things which um yeah it, it, Sometimes a precedent gets new features um, over old features. That seems to be in some teams, not not on all teams, though. I think one of the other problems, and I'm not at all justifying it, but I think if you look at if you look at there, there are some kinds of accessibility that are more visible than others. So uh, dark mode is a good example of of a feature that is very visible if you can see because it inverts the screen, uh, but it is actually an accessibility feature. Whereas if you look at making something work with voiceover. In a way, you know, that isn't going to change how the app looks, really. So it's like, it's going to look the same, even if it doesn't work with voiceover. And I, I suspect that's partly why um, this stuff gets missed sometimes. But yeah, good good question. Thank you. Thank you, Alison, for your question. We really appreciate it. Sorry to kind of move things along. We've got a few other questions to get to as well. So we're going to come to Scott, and then we're going to come to Steve. So Scott, uh, welcome. My question is regarding um, devices that are, I guess you might call firmware based or special purpose, where like anything from like today's speakers, set top boxes, uh, uh, for, uh, you know, medical equipment, anything that's more special purpose. That, and is it possible for one you who knows how, of course, using a Canute console to actually write or modify 
firmware? It depends on the firmware, but yes, it's a short answer. So the 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 anything which can be modified by a a Linux computer, which uh, was in the the second masterclass we did, can be modified by a so a, a, every different every different embedded device is different these days it's becoming easier and easier because more of them are, are having relatively high powered processors i won't go into too much detail on this but older devices can be much harder to flash and sometimes you might need specialist equipment and that might not be something that you can do on a canoe console without other equipment um so for piece of defense equipment which dates from the 80s you're going to custom you need to need a custom connector you know, because it would go on a ROM chip eventually, right? Like a EEPROM or something like that. Yes, you need like a ROM programmer. Um, but actually, so I've done like little bits of embedded stuff. And actually, what you what you find if you can solve the connectivity thing is that it's actually quite an accessible career to get into um, because a lot of the embedded devices don't have screens, right? So if you think about your smart plug, your smart speaker, um, you know, some circuitry to control a fridge, for example, none of those things have screens, right? So the, the UI, the GUI can't be inaccessible because it's it's not graphical. Thank you very much, uh, Scott, for your question too. It's really great to know. All right, we've got one more question, one more raised hand before we finish. So we're going to go to um, Steve now. So Steve, welcome. Hi, guys. Uh Another brilliant masterclass, thank you. Uh, this is a question for Ben. I'm very interested to hear about your experience at the BBC. Um, thinking about accessibility, I tend to think of it uh, from the point of view of the consumer. So, um, you know, what BBC services and apps are accessible and, and what, you know, the BBC might have in place to ensure that what the producer is accessible. What I hadn't really considered before was if you had access needs and you were working for the BBC, what they had in place. So I'm, I'm wondering, has your experience been very much reinventing the wheel, having to solve problems as they come up at work? Or is there any structure in place in the BBC to support uh, people with employees with access needs to, to get on and be able to do the jobs? Yeah, so so in in the spirit of sort of being completely transparent, I'd say that you know it's it's a little bit of both. So there's an access services team um, that handles things like um, access to work and um, sort of help. So you, that's all done for you. Um, there's like a bank of sort of roaming PAs that you can use if you need to. Um, we've got a decent number of pieces of assistive technology that we've licensed um that's all fine there's an internal accessibility team that makes sure that all of the internal tooling that you have to use is is accessible so in that respect i think it's pretty good um but yeah i think so to to the best of my knowledge i'm the only blind developer there i'm definitely the only blind developer there now i don't know how many there's been in the past and so i think some of the more technical stuff i had to had to sort of do a little bit of head scratching and, and figure out myself I, th I think i think i mean if you if you went into it expecting it to be perfect then you'd be disappointed but i definitely wouldn't say that it's bad oh, that's really that's really good to hear i just want follow on if i may be greedy and have another question just following on from that do you think the, the things that you've problems you've had to solve um as a developer for somebody another blind or low vision developer coming into work for the BBC, do you think they would benefit from the, the problems you've already solved ahead of them? 
I would hope so. I mean, that that's in a way that's a communications problem, right? So if they worked on the same stuff, I would hope so. Um, if they worked on something different, it, it would it would vary. And you know, maybe like maybe it's maybe the the and I'm sort of still sort of figuring out how I feel about this. But like maybe the way that I've helped has maybe the biggest impact that I would have for someone on in the future hasn't been won't be technical maybe it'll be more social um for for better or for worse i guess it depends on what they think of me right but hopefully you know hopefully i've proven that actually you know what you i've worked across like sort of probably like five or six different projects now i've you know and not 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 wanting to sort of inflate my ego too much and um not not um saying anything about my engineering abilities but i think fundamentally i have proven that it can be done and there are you know a decent number of people at the beeb now who know that it can be done so hopefully that will have helped and i'm guessing as far as your colleagues are concerned people don't know what they don't know until they actually have experience of working with a vision impaired colleague they're, they're not going to know are they yeah 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 and you've got to be pretty open like i was surprised about how many people um in the tech industry didn't know that blind people could use computers right so but then it's like they're not they're not it doesn't make doesn't make them nasty people they just means that there's a bunch of stuff they don't know yeah uh-huh. absolutely thank you so much for your question and that brings us to the end of our questions folks all right well thank you everybody for coming and thank you for that great moderation there as well learn from the expert of course um, um ed as a uh, as a quick reminder um where can people go if they want to learn more about the Canute console bristolbraille.org that's b-r-i-s-t-o-l braille.org and uh, you can find our email address and our telephone number on there great stuff thank you everyone i'm ben muster rose it's been good take care stay safe and bye for now we hope you've enjoyed this episode of braillecast extra you can find more braille related content by subscribing to braillecast all one word in your podcast client of choice or listening to Brailcast, connecting the dots for Brailists everywhere on your smart speaker. For the latest information about future Brailist events and how to join live, subscribe to our weekly email newsletter at brailists.org newsletter slash sign up. You can also visit our events page at brailists.org events. If you have comments on this recording or suggestions of topics or guests for future events, we'd love to hear from you. Please email help at braylists.org. You can also find the Braylists on Twitter at Braylists or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Foundation. Finally, if you like what you've heard, spread the word. We welcome new listeners and live participants alike, so if you know other people who are interested in Braille, please tell them where to find us. In the meantime, on behalf of everyone at the Braillists, thanks for listening and bye for now.